bad guys are having a great time because they're making lots of money because of high CPMs and the fraud detection can't do its work because we can't even detect whether the ad ran. Now with CTV being 10 times higher in CPMs, it's become the most lucrative target for fraudsters. Everyone is benefiting from it. And that's why everyone has an incentive to keep the status quo, which is a euphemistic way of saying they want to suppress outside voices. Hello and welcome to season three. Season three, how do we get here? Of the Appod. This season is going to continue on from season one and season two in that I'll be joined by expert guests discussing a specific topic related to the ad industry. We'll be releasing a new episode each week and we'll be covering topics such as digital measurement, the trade press, media pitches, recruitment and much more. In this first episode, we're going to be discussing ad fraud and I'm joined by the well-renowned Dr. Fu, the founder of Fu Analytics and all-round knowledgeable person on ad fraud and somebody who commits a lot of their own personal time educating others. Dr. Fu can come across controversial and has written hundreds of articles for major publications, but it's difficult to dispute his approach and incentives to cleaning up the poorest parts of the industry that we're in. Ad fraud is a huge, huge problem, and it continues to persist. And today we talk about what it is, why it exists, and what can be done about it. Please feel free to click subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this on and add a rating. It really helps this podcast continue to grow. Anyway, without further ado, this is episode one, season three of The Ad Pod. Hello, Dr. Fu. How are you? Welcome to The Ad Pod. Hey, Wayne. Uh, good. Very good. Glad to be here. No, great to have you here. Really great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Um, before we get into kind of the crux of the conversation, for those listening who might not know you, would you mind giving us a quick intro to your career and what you do now? Sure. Um, I guess people know me as ad fraud researcher, but um, I've been doing digital marketing for quite quite a long time. So when I, after I finished uh, MIT, uh, I got my PhD in material science there. Got here to New York in 95 and worked for McKinsey, uh, started off with McKinsey 95, 96, and decided I got to be uh, in the trenches of digital marketing, so to speak, uh, instead of a spectator to it. So I left McKinsey in early 96, got into the early days of digital, uh, and we call it Silicon Alley here as opposed to Silicon Valley. <laughs> right? So that's uh, New York. And been doing digital marketing ever since, but uh, I've been more on the business side of things rather than the the technical side because I'm not a coder myself, but I do work with uh, talented coders and engineers. So um, back then it was really convincing clients they needed a website. And you know, fast forward, you know, 25, 20 or more years, uh, you can see how digital has transformed entire industries. So I've uh, been doing digital for a long time. But I do have some uh, interim experiences, uh, worked at American Express, so that's client, client side, and then worked on agency side with uh, Interpublic Group, as well as Omnicom. And then about 10 years ago, got back to my own consulting practice, and that's what I started uh, looking at data and really getting into the ad fraud research. Uh, and now we have a set of tools called Foo Analytics 
that we use to audit campaigns and help clients look at how well their uh, digital ad campaigns are doing. So that's a brief synopsis of what I do. No, amazing. That's perfect. And for this season of the AdPod, we're uh, trying for our audience to get to know uh, our guests a bit better. And maybe this question's been asked a lot over the years, well, they sort of break the ice (laughs) questions, but um, could you tell us an interesting fact about yourself that maybe others in industry might not know? Well, I guess people have asked me about the doctor. Uh, So I'm not a medical doctor per se, uh, but uh, the doctor comes from uh, my PhD uh, at MIT. And fun fact is, uh, you know, finally, after 30 years, uh, some of the organic LED materials have made their way into consumer electronics. So some of the Samsung phones and LG TVs and Sony TVs now use OLEDs, organic LEDs, as the material for generating the light. So I was working on that in the lab and we were fabricating the materials and testing it for the color of the light output, as well as how to stabilize it so that it can actually uh, work uh, in air, in open air for longer periods of time, because those are very delicate and fragile materials that would actually degrade over time. So the doctor is, is for kind of a symbol of the scientific method, if you will. So as you know, you know, one of my earliest uh, catchphrases for the company is the art of marketing distilled into science. So, you know, I'm very data oriented. And, you know, whenever someone presents me with a claim, it's like, okay, well, show me the data, you know, how do you support that with uh, analytics or data, or maybe not at all, Uh, in, in which case, it's like, okay, well, let's go back to the drawing boards, let's go get some data, right. So that's what the doctor means in my title. And I've kind of kept it. Amazing. Now, if we didn't know before, we definitely know now. Thank you. That's great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about ad fraud as a topic. And we tried, we like to start the podcast by sort of defining it. So how would you define ad fraud? Yeah, that's a great way to start. Um, a lot of people understand ad fraud or at least have heard of ad fraud and they understand it to be bot activity, right? So I think in the earliest days of digital marketing, when you have websites that were kind of created from WordPress templates or things like that. You can imagine those sites have no human audiences simply because humans don't even know they're there. So they buy all their traffic and common sense will tell you there's not a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do, but to go to your specific website when you tell them to, right? So um, I also use the term bot traffic equals bot traffic, right? B-O-U-G-H-T traffic equals bot traffic, B-O-T traffic. Um, So that's kind of the origin of ad fraud. But as you can imagine, over the years, as more and more of the spending moved into mobile and mobile app and now CTV, there's other forms of fraud that are not necessarily bot traffic going to a website, right? And we've now seen flashlight apps continuously loading ads in the background, alarm clock apps uh, loading ads when they're not being used. So there's many, many examples of fraud that are not necessarily bot related. Okay, so we kind of have to expand the de- uh, definition, expand the umbrella a little bit and say all of those other techniques used to inflate the number of ad impressions or do other things to trick the measurement, right? They would have the bots click on the ads or maybe the mobile apps will click on the ads as well. All of those would be considered ad fraud. Right? So kind of broadening the definition a little bit. Got you. That made sense. And it, yeah, it's a really good clarification because I think Sometimes people just think it is just bots going around the internet, surfacing up ads, and then you know whoever monetizes. But 
obviously there's different ways and you know we're seeing that you mentioned the evolution to mobile app ctv seems to be the one which everyone's talking about has a fraud yeah. problem and that's you know i think that probably because the size of the price is so big because the cpms are so high um, exactly it's exactly so- the same movie that we've seen before right so we went from fake websites that use bot traffic to generate the page views to sell the ads right that was display ads and then video ads were more expensive so the bad guys started focusing on video ads and one of the simplest forms of fraud was basically taking or buying a display ad slot like 300 by 250 and sticking an expensive video ad in there right so they would pay a low cpm for the display ad slot and then stick a high cpm video ad in there and just arbitrage the difference that's still fraudulent because often the video ad doesn't even fit in the in the display ad slot right so sometimes the the fraudsters would even um, you know stick multiple video ads in the same ad slot and so the evolution is repeating itself, right? So then we went into mobile, mobile app, and people thought that mobile app was very much more targeted because now we have geolocation information, right? So now with CTV being 10 times higher in CPMs, it's become the most lucrative target for fraudsters. And on top of that, CTV is the least measurable because my JavaScript tag can't run because there's no browser, right? And similarly, none of the other fraud detection companies uh, have a JavaScript tag for that. So none of us can actually even verify whether the ad ever ran on TV, right? Or connected TV. And so now we're starting to see additional data coming out of Group M that says, you know, one in 10 ads ran when the TV is off. And then there's other groups that have seen one in four ads never run. And I'm basically saying from my data and from what I've seen, you know, the ads never ran at all, right? All 16 CTV fraud cases were about falsified bid requests. There was no proof that ads ever ran. So that's just an environment where the bad guys are having a great time because they're making lots of money because of the high CPMs and the fraud detection can't do its work because we can't even detect whether the ad ran. It's almost uh, easy pickings really for a fraudster. It's taking, money, it's taking candy from a baby, basically. Yeah. And then, um, so with like, with fraud in general, how much of it is nefarious versus how much of it is just misset up or just crawlers around the internet? Like how much of it do you think is deliberately targeting the ad industry to take money from it? Pretty much all of it. That's why we call it fraud. Okay. So it's, it's not whoopsies, right? So I have a whole article on we can't chalk it up to oopsies we don't know, we didn't know anymore okay so yes there are still errors so for example when i audit campaigns there's stuff like uh, the agency forgot to set the geolocation right so we're seeing ads that are supposed to run in north america running in vietnam or other places where it completely shouldn't be running uh, or frequency caps or day parting and all that kind of stuff those are those are the errors but when we're talking about fraud it's all deliberate Now, maybe a nuance to your question is that we don't have a whole bunch of fraudsters or or bot makers running around because it doesn't take many of them, right? So imagine the vast botnets that we've heard of in the past that are responsible for DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks. They can generate so much traffic to overwhelm even the largest of sites, but that wasn't a lucrative use because they don't get paid for that. But now if you kind of rent time on that big botnet and you say, oh, I need 10 million page views for my website and you can just buy that traffic. 
then it becomes a very, very lucrative use of those botnets. So now they're basically renting time on those vast botnets and saying, who wants to buy traffic? You know, just tell us the URL or a list of URLs and we'll repeatedly hit those, right? I'm just using bots as a simple way of articulating it. But in, in those cases, a few bot makers maintaining a few large botnets can actually sustain the entire fraud economy that is part of the digital advertising economy, right? And because everyone depends on the volumes, right? I've talked about uh, this this morning with the EU parliament. There's mostly the middlemen who make more money when there's more volume that flows through their platform, right? Or their exchange. So they're not in a rush to stop the fraud because that might mean 90% of their volume evaporates if they actually stopped it, right? So. The middlemen don't have an incentive to stop it. A lot of the publishers have resorted to buying the traffic, so they can't go back to, oh, not buying the traffic, because again, their, tra their numbers would, would dip dramatically. And then even the advertisers have somewhat of a negative incentive. So there's really three key things that I look at. The large quantities of ad impressions to buy, which are completely irrational, right? There's not that many humans on earth, and there's not that many hours in a day for humans to generate that many ad impressions. The second is the super low prices, because now when a fake site is delivering the impressions, as opposed to a real publisher, the fake site has no cost of content, right? Unlike, unlike a real publisher that has to pay journalists to write the content or editors and things like that, so they can afford to sell it for very low prices. And then finally, uh, the high appearance of performance. So I, I use the word appearance because the bots are also clicking on the ads, right? So not only are they generating the ad impression, they're also clicking on it. So the bot uh, clicks are always at a higher click rate than humans. So in that case, the, uh, the advertisers are addicted to those three things, large quantities of ads to buy, low CPM prices, and what they think is better performance because they're seeing higher click-through rates. So you can see how that's very hard for even the advertisers to wean themselves from yeah. the problem of ad fraud. Yeah, and particularly as it's been so rife for so long to sort of walk back from it. it and it's impossible, it's a, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and some of these young marketers, I mean, I, I like to say I've been doing digital marketing for longer than some of these people have been alive, right? So some of these are 22-year-olds straight out of college. They have lots of budget that they're responsible for spending. So, you know, another phrase is uh, marketers of the video game generation, right? So higher numbers or like higher scores win. So they're always just looking for, oh, can we get more billions of impressions? And can we get better pricing for it? Or can we get more clicks? Right. So if that's all they've known, uh, as opposed to real, you know, solid digital marketing, um, that's part of the problem, right? They, they simply don't know better and they simply are not looking at the right metrics. Right. And, and there's also not many people <clears throat> who would tell them otherwise because they're also incentivized by spending money. Yes, the agencies love when they keep spending, right? So the agencies will say, hey, look, here's some double verify report or integral ad science report that all say fraud is below 1%. Don't worry about it. Just keep spending. Yeah. And also like the, the tech platforms who make money because it's a percentage of media in most cases. And um, yeah, it's obviously it's a super rife um, issue. You spoke about the, the fraud economy. I don't know if you have insight into this or who who is it and also like what what's the ramifications to to fraudsters in our industry 
Yeah. So, so that's a very common question I get asked, like, who are the fraudsters? Can we identify them and can we put them in jail? Okay. Well, we can't jail everybody. Okay. Cause I, the way I answer that is everybody is profiting off of it. Okay. So let me, let me be more specific. An ad exchange is not the one making the botnets. They're also not the one making the fake websites and the fake mobile apps. The ad exchange is the one letting the fake websites into their exchange and the fake mobile apps into their exchange. And whatever volume those bad guys are generating, they get a cut of it. Okay, so the ad exchange is not committing the fraud, but what's the line, right? What's the gray area to say, okay, well, if they just look the other way and let a whole bunch of uh, fake websites come into their exchange, you know, when do they uh, start taking responsibility? Right. So I'm going to cite an example from 2015 where AppNexus got PR for themselves by publishing a study that says, oh, hey, look, we cleaned up 92% of our ad impressions. So in the span of one month, they went from 260 billion impressions to 20 billion impressions. Okay, they, they cut out all the bad guys that were so obviously bad that even they could figure it out. Okay, So in that case, they got PR for themselves. And now I can cite the public number, right? It's 92% fraud. It's not a 9% fraud problem. It's not a 19% fraud problem. It was a 92% fraud problem back in 2015. So the question is, how many of the advertisers that bought ads from AppNexus before the cleanup in 2015 got their money back? Okay, basically none. And none of them asked for their money back because the advertisers wanted to spend it all. So it was terribly inconvenient and no one wanted the money back. So despite that data point in 2015, it's only gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. So in that case, the money went to AppNexus. It wasn't just that it went to fraudsters and criminals and we can go find this Russian hacker and stick him in jail. Okay, Everyone is benefiting from it. And that's why everyone has an incentive to keep the status quo, which is a euphemistic way of saying they want to suppress outside voices that say otherwise. So on the, not necessarily specifically AppNexus, but any other company, at what point, you know, let's, I'll put my naive hat on and go, good for them. They're cleaning up the supply chain. They actually got you know, a ton of criticism because they hadn't done it sooner, but they did it. And it was 2015. Now, how far back could you go if you did want to get money back in theory, if someone did it today? If someone did a similar study, came out and launched it in ad exchange or at their own event, wherever it is, could you throw similar criticism or could the industry throw criticism at them for not doing it sooner? No, because everyone's going to then hide behind statute of limitations. Oh, well, you didn't file the lawsuit uh, you know, three years ago, so therefore it's too late for you to file the lawsuit and ask for your money back, right? So everyone has easy ways of kind of shifting the blame right and then you know similarly if you ask the agency okay well what how much fraud was there and how much money do i get back the agencies will cite double verify and is which says it's less than one percent so oh there's no problem here you're not going to get any money back so you see how everything is just built up uh and this whole house of cards but you can see how fragile it is if someone actually discovers this if someone actually takes the action and makes this better the entire house of cards is going to come tumbling down, right? So no one wants to be that one person or party that actually facilitates that. So it's just kind of keep the status quo, 
we'll do what we need to do to avoid getting sued. So I'll, I'll cite Google, right? So Google, you know, has all these mobile apps in the Play Store. And remember the many, many case studies over the years, for example, in 2016, when Craig Silverman, the reporter from BuzzFeed News, he said, here's 600 apps that are openly committing ad fraud. When he brought that to Google's attention, Google did kick them out. But the point is, Google could have looked at the same data themselves, right? Why did we have to have a reporter that doesn't even work in the industry uh, look at this and, and expose it, right? Google is in the best position to see all the fraudulent activity. Like, how the heck are these apps generating tens of billions of impressions? Or why are they loading ads in the overnight hours when humans are sleeping, right? Some very, very obvious things they could have looked at and could have found those apps and kicked them out. But just like Google, none of the other exchanges are going to be proactive about it. They will do the right thing when they're presented with incontrovertible evidence of fraud. But kicking out 600 apps out of the 10 million that exist is not going to really make a dent in the fraud problem, right? And that's just going to keep going until the next 600 get exposed and, and documented in BuzzFeed News or something. And so, so what do you think are the, what things can advertisers and publishers in particular do to make a dent into that fraud problem? So I'm going to distinguish uh, the publishers that are good publishers from the publishers that are outright committing fraud or, or determined to commit fraud. Because in those cases, the publishers of the fake websites and fake mobile apps have many tools and many means at their disposal to cover up the fraud and scale the fraud, right? So they have bots that can easily get by bot detection. They have mobile apps that look legit because they're actually installed on real humans' devices. So whenever you look at, okay, is it a real device? Yes, it's a real device, right? So there are many ways they can get around detection. So it really comes down to the intent of the publisher. And I'm going to separate publishers into two groups. The mainstream publishers like the New York Times, the uh, Wall Street Journal, you know, Condé Nast, Hearst, those publishers, they're not out to rip you off. Okay? So their intent is generally okay. I'm giving them a kind of an umbrella pass. Even though some of them have started buying traffic and some of them are doing audience extension, those are smaller problems we can clean up later. Okay? Compare that to the hundreds and hundreds of sellers that are just operating entirely fake websites built with WordPress templates that have 100% plagiarized content. And those tend to be celebrity, sports, uh, news-oriented things so they can just plagiarize it and remix it a little bit. Okay, So we've heard of ChatGPT. That's been around for 20 years. right? ChatGPT is just the current name for something that consumers can relate to. But these algorithms that use harvested content and remix it slightly to be used for fake websites, that's been around and done for 20 years now. Okay. And then on the advertiser side, uh, there's a very simple solve. Okay. They have been throwing more tech at the problem by buying verification services, viewability services, brand safety services, all that kind of stuff from vendors. They can solve all of that by simply going to an inclusion list approach and just include good publishers, like the ones you've heard of before. Okay. I said this earlier today at the EU parliament meeting, but also I do this in class with students. I ask them, name off 10 websites that you visit every single day as fast as you can. Most of them can't even get to 10. Because if you think about it, you might visit long tail sites once in a while, 
but you don't visit them every single day. So there's a set of sites that you use every single day, right? And it's less than 10. Same thing with mobile apps. I say name the mobile apps you use every single day as fast as you can. They can't even get to 10. So if humans are using a very small number of sites and apps, what the heck are the other 150 million sites that are running ads, right? Or the 10 million mobile apps in Google Play Store and Apple Store that are running ads, right? Those don't have a lot of human users. So you might have seen or remember that chart that I've had for years and years. I keep updating it year after year. It's a one where there's three lines, the yellow and green line, that those represent humans' usage of the internet, social, and mobile. And then the blue line is the digital ad spend in the US. Roughly 2012, 2013, so about 10 years ago, a decade ago, is when the blue line started diverging more and more from the yellow and green lines. So the ad spend keeps going up, but it can't be explained by the human's usage of the internet, social, and mobile, right? So that gap between the blue line and the human's usage keeps getting larger and larger. And we can basically attribute that to something else is generating all that volume. Okay, now you and I know it's bot activity, fraudulent activity. And because it's been happening for 10 years, people are so used to the large numbers, right? When they say, oh, well, why is this publisher only offering 500 million ads? We're expecting 500 billion ads to be, you know, to buy. So, you know, these, the, re, the real numbers actually look very strange to advertisers because they've been so used to the fake numbers for so long. I think that's a massive challenge for high quality, lower scale publishers because they want to have a conversation with a buyer, but their available impressions seem it's so small, right? It seems so small. And then, right? and, and the CPMs seem higher because they actually have to pay journalists to write the content. Right, right. right? Yeah. So it's really hard, really hard for the publishers. Yeah. Exactly. And, and do you think that there's a way to forge more direct relationships between good publishers and good buyers? Or do you think the system is so endemic, it's actually going to be super challenging to change? No, in fact, any buyer who wants to get ahead of the game can start buying direct today. Okay, so let me be more specific in CTV. When you actually watch streaming on ESPN, you may notice once in a while, there's the red ESPN logo on a black background and bad elevator music. That is an unsold ad slot. Okay, so ESPN has a lot of humans watching streaming, but even they, the legitimate media seller, can't sell out because too many of the buyers are looking for low-cost ESPN somewhere else, right? So if you just go and buy the ads from the media seller or the publisher directly, first of all, you're going to cut out all the middlemen that are all chomping away at your dollar, right? And so those ISBA studies, the ANA study, the uh, WFA study all show that at a minimum, 50 cents on the dollar is going to the middleman, not to working media, right? So if you cut out all of that by buying direct, you're getting double your money, right? Essentially, you're getting almost the full dollar going towards showing ads. And on top of that, you don't need to buy massive, massive quantities of ad impressions if majority of those are actually not shown to humans or not seen by humans, right? So we're talking in pixel stuffing, ad stacking, all the other techniques that the bad guys use to inflate their quantities. None of those are going to work for you, right? So for the advertisers, they can pay 10 times higher CPMs, but buy one-tenth the quantity of ads 
and still do better, right? And really the, the next evolution is for them to actually look at business outcomes because that's the only way you can tell whether your digital advertising is working. Too few of them have actually done those studies to know that those sales would have happened anyway. It wasn't because of the digital marketing. And even if you got a very high click-through rate, it's the bots clicking on your ads, not humans. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been one of my biggest frustrations is the almost digital has inherited this TV trading mindset of squeeze down price, squeeze down price, as opposed to thinking about what does it relate to in regards to performance or outcomes. Yes. And therefore KPIs are set like CPM KPIs and you get auditors who benchmark CPMs. You're like, this is a ridiculous thing to be benchmarking when there's yes. so many other variables which uh, which, which yes. control this. Yes. And I think I'm going to blame the agency holding companies. So let me be very specific. I don't blame the people who work at the media agencies because it's it's not they're not trying to do a bad thing, right? They're just doing their jobs. But the revenue model of the holding companies, many of which are public companies, basically incentivize them to keep pushing programmatic, not only because they make a higher margin selling programmatic ads, there's also hidden fraud behind the scenes. So do you remember the 2016 study by the ANA where they had K2 basically go and interview a lot of agency people? There's been things like uh, principal trading, uh, hidden markups. So essentially they're taking ownership of the media like they would buy oranges at wholesale and then they would mark it up and sell it at retail without disclosing the margin to their clients. And that's a no-no because the agency is supposed to be the agent of the advertiser. But in this case, they're basically arbitraging and ripping off their own clients. Okay, so it's an agency holding company uh, business model that has been uh, perpetuated and therefore they keep pushing programmatic. Um, you know, And when clients say, oh, we don't want to um, we don't want to buy anymore. They keep saying it's the most cost efficient. You can buy the most quantity. So you're going to get the biggest reach uh, through programmatic and all that kind of stuff. So they find all these excuses to keep pushing programmatic. Yeah. And I mean, I spent the majority of my career before TPA agency side in programmatic roles. And I'd like to think I was challenging this with brands and advertisers, but sometimes they just didn't want to be challenged. Just hit my CPM goal, hit my reach target. You've got yep. this spreadsheet from an auditor to fill in. Uh, this isn't, and then it's like introducing viewability. Um, and you just, you just feel like you couldn't win. But when you find a brand who really cares and gets it, it's so rewarding. So there is yes. opportunity there, but the system by and large is, you know, it's, it's reasonably sort of like rot that's set in. Yeah. And you might wonder like, why, why am I, I should be very pessimistic but I'm actually optimistic because of the pandemic. Okay, I'll tell you what, what I've seen. So I've been doing this for 10 years. For the first eight years since 2012, um, no one wanted to rock the boat, right? Everyone wanted to just keep doing. They didn't want, it was inconvenient to hear you know, the truth about ad fraud. But when the pandemic hit in 2020, the pandemic rocked the boat. So since 2020, I've had a lot more advertisers come to me and ask for help to do audits. So they were previously afraid to, to look closer, but now they're saying, okay, we know money's going to get tighter, right? So it's better for us to look now and do the audits. So I'm actually optimistic now because things are turning around. We are doing many more audits 
uh, no cost pilots, in fact, for some of these advertisers so that they can just take a look at some of their own campaigns and realize that, you know, double verify reports or IS reports were severely underreporting the fraud. And there's other things that are simply suboptimal, like it doesn't show up in your placement reports. For example, when Breitbart lies about their domain, right? Breitbart's not going to put Breitbart.com in the, in the bid request. They're going to lie and put some other site in there. Whatever site they pretend to be, that's called domain spoofing, right? That's going to get rolled up in the placement report. So you're not going to see Breitbart in there, even though you're actually still funding Breitbart and other hate sites and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing is the fraud reports keep telling you there's very low fraud. So you think there's, it's fine, right? So the way I've been articulating it to advertisers is that those were the tools you were using for the last 10 years. That's fine. You didn't do anything wrong, but that was the limit. You know, that was the limitation. Now it's time to look more closely, do more audits or use better tools, right? I happen to have a platform, but you know, basically they can look more closely without even using Foo Analytics. They can just look more closely at their GA, look more closely and request uh, placement reports from their DCM, right? Or, or CM360, the ad server and DSP, and just start matching up quantities, kind of like what the ISBA did. And they can already find problems that should be resolved. Right. So I think it's really time to upgrade their tools. It's time to, you know, get better or more mature in their digital marketing. And it's time to move beyond the vanity metrics that have been plaguing our industry for the last 10 years. And I think it's that comes down to the mindset of the stakeholder, like the cultural, there's someone to go in with the mindset of, I just want to do the right thing. Like, and sometimes that's a new person into a new role. Exactly. So we have the benefit of CMOs having only a lifespan of 18 months because mm. then there's the next CMO who's not going to stand for that crap, right? He's going to say, I'm going to fix this. And it's not my responsibility, right? I'm not, I'm not going to defend the previous guy or, or gal who, right. who bought this stuff. We're going to make this better and actually do better for the company. Right. Um, a, a couple of questions related to sort of the finance aspect of it. So We've been talking a lot about the, the sort of the challenges, the different types, the, the incentive structures that exist in the industry. But how how big a cost issue is this for the industry? Like, how much is fraud costing the industry per year? Um, I'm not going to say the big number because it will sound completely irrational. But let me let me point out a couple of things that that might help you understand the, the extent of this. Okay, so it is trivial to set up tens of thousands of fake sites using WordPress templates. There was even a tool called Site Generator, Automatic Site Generator in the past that that we came across 10 years ago. So creating new sites is extremely trivial. Uh, Most of the fraudsters don't actually need to even know how to make a bot or a botnet because now anyone can just Google buy traffic for my site and you'll have hundreds of vendors ready to sell you traffic. It's the same phenomenon as fake views for your YouTube channel, uh, fake followers for your Twitter and Instagram, right? So all of this has been automated for years and years and years, and it's enormous quantities, right? So it's, again, like we cited the, the AppNexus uh, thing from 2015, it's not a 9% problem, it's not a 19% problem, right? We have one data point, which is very rare, but we have one data point. It was 92% of the impressions that AppNexus was selling. Okay. So if that gives you a sense of how big the problem is, right, that's why so much money is involved. 
right? I think the latest numbers were 600 billion being spent in digital every year. So it's not a one-time thing. Every year, that pot of gold gets replenished by the largest of advertisers' dollars. And that's a pot of gold. I wrote an article and I, I had an image of a pot of gold sitting by the roadside with no lid on it, okay? It's literally right there. And if you're walking by that, and you look around, there's nobody else there, right? Isn't it, you know, wouldn't you take some of the gold? Because it's just sitting there. There's no, no even lid on it, right? So it's really that simple and that pervasive. And it really takes a marketer that says, this is my budget. I've been given responsibility for it. And I need to generate a return for my company. It's going to be those specific marketers uh, who will take the action. And it's not a difficult solve. It is putting together an inclusion list that's rational that says, okay, these are sites that humans have heard of and they go to. These are mobile apps that humans have heard of and they use. So these are the places we want to show our ads, even though the CPMs are higher. And they should structure deals where they're buying as direct as possible, right? I realize that some, sometimes they can't negotiate individual deals with individual sites, but now there's more technologies, for example, from Dan ads, where you can actually go to a self-serve interface and buy ads on Wall Street Journal. Okay, so if more and more advertisers explored these options rather than be blindly misled by their agency, um, it's going to make things better. Um, so I think for the advertisers, I think when you wrote it, it was too ahead of its time. Back then, it was prior to the in-housing trend. Back then, the advertisers didn't have enough expertise. And they felt like they had to let their agency do it because the agency claimed they have all this expertise. But programmatic is less than 10 years old, right? So everyone is essentially finding their way through the dark, right? Both the agency people and the marketers are finding their way through the dark with respect to programmatic marketing. So it really means you have to do a little more work up front to set up the programmatic campaigns. But once it's running, it's automated by algorithms. So there's not a lot of manual labor you got to do while the campaign is running. But if the advertisers can focus their time on looking at the analytics and the business outcomes, that's where they need to focus. And that's going to mean that they can actually run better programmatic campaigns with less conflicts of interest than their agency, right? The agency probably is trying to do the right thing. But like I said before, the business model means that they're going to keep pushing programmatic and keep saying that it works even yeah. when it's actually not working. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so my, my sort of second to last question, I sometimes read and hear that blockchain is the answer to ad fraud to try to, re to try to really identify where money is going. Um, so a sort of a two part question. Number one is, how does money actually get in? Like, how does a fraudster sign up to an exchange and get paid? It seems like there should be some better controls there. Uh, and the second is blockchain. Is it the answer or not? Or not? I'll answer the second first. Blockchain is not the answer. <laughs> there we go. Um, if you wanted more record keeping and transparency, you would look at the damn log files because all the data is there. You don't need to put it in a blockchain. Okay, so... It's really about looking at the data that's already recorded by the, the log files and the transactions. Okay. The second thing is fraudsters initially would set up the fake websites and they would be added to exchanges like the early days. AppNexus let everyone in. Okay. 
even to this day, you would think that they have better controls, tighter controls. But now I'm going to cite Megan Graham's experiment, right? She was a CNBC reporter that was constantly finding her articles plagiarized on other sites that were basically using her articles to make money uh, through advertising. So she decided to run an experiment in 2020. She set up a, a website and plagiarized her own articles, 10 of them, and put it on the website, and then applied to eight ad exchanges to see if they would let her, let her in. Seven of the eight exchanges let her in, and within the week, she started making money and seeing ads from major advertisers on her completely fake website. There was only one exchange that didn't let her in. Can you guess which one? I don't want to say Google, but <laughs> it, it might be Google. Google. Oh, yeah. damn it. <laughs> so Google, because they have their crawlers, right? They're always looking for duplicate content. Uh, so they, they said, well, this is 100% duplicate content. We're not going to let you in, right? So one of the, of the eight didn't let her in, but seven of the eight did. And then when she confronted them and said, like, this is a completely new site. You can see the domain registration was less than a week old. Why the heck would you let a site like this in and start making money off of the biggest of advertisers? Um, but anyway, you can look at that experiment just as a data point to show you how trivial it is. But you can imagine, you know, somebody would raise some alarm bells when you see a site that is less than one month old selling a billion impressions. Okay. So the way the bad guys get around that is they buy up existing sites. Okay. So there's a small site that has some human audience. There's also um, a company cited in one of Craig Silverman's articles. It's a company called We Buy Apps. So they buy up small uh, mobile apps that had human users, and they simply juice the numbers right to the moon. So, um, so those are all already part of the ecosystem. They're all making a tiny bit of ad revenue. But once they get bought up and aggregated by a bad actor, they can now start committing fraud with them. So they're already part of the Google ecosystem and part of AdSense, so they don't have to apply brand new, right? So it's much easier for them to already get in and just juice the numbers. So that's kind of how the money ends up going to the fraudsters. They have tried and true techniques to get in. And in fact, they might use some of the SSPs that are just more lax on their, on their policies, right? And, and let them in. So there's many, many ways for the bad guys to get the money. Cool. Thank you. Um, this has been an amazing conversation, Dr. Fu. I really appreciate it. Tons of amazing insight. And um, obviously your experience in this field is sort of second, second to none. Uh, for those listening, you know, the, the theme of this series is transformation. And what do you think a buyer or seller could do to really transform sort of their approach to protecting themselves from ad fraud? So I'll start with the easy answer for the seller, right? So we're talking about the publishers, the mainstream publishers who are not trying to commit fraud and they're not trying to rip off the advertisers. The publishers can do more to educate the advertisers about moving away from vanity metrics like large numbers of impressions, large numbers of clicks and low CPM prices and focus more on business outcomes, okay? It's hard in certain cases, right? The biggest of CPG companies will say, oh, well, we don't sell anything online, right? We sell soup and soda offline. So how can we track that, right? So they make all these excuses, but it's really necessary for them to focus on business outcomes. So the publishers can do more to help educate so that the advertisers are focused on, on the outcomes. And then the advertisers themselves, I, can, I would say, should take more aggressive action, not only in looking at the reports 
uh, that are available to them, but they may not have seen before. So I'll tell you, even last week, I had to walk an agency through pulling a double verify report because they had never, ever pulled one because the client never asked for it. Even though the client spent $33 million on double verify for the year, they had never asked for a report. They never looked at it. So simple things like that, look at the log files, pull the placement reports and start matching things up. Uh, and more importantly, start to move budget over to an inclusion list approach, right? So the easiest way is to have a transition plan. You're not gonna go to an inclusion list overnight because it's just too drastic of a change, but just say carve out a 1% of your budget and set up a new campaign line that uses an inclusion list approach versus everything else, right? You're still using a block list or whatever. Set up a campaign line, make sure you have the right business outcome metrics to look at. And right? there's some interim metrics that could be good proxies for that. And if you see that's actually working better and driving more business outcomes, then you just shift a little bit more budget into that inclusion list campaign line. And over time, you'll be able to then make that transition. And then you'll have your campaign lines based on an inclusion list approach because there's just way too many bad guys sites for you to put into an, to a block list, right? It's just, you'll run out of space and you just have to keep doing it. Bad guys will always stay ahead. But there's a finite number of good publishers and good sites and apps that humans use. If you have that in your inclusion list, that's your way forward. Perfect. That's great. Thank you very much, Dr. Fu. I really appreciate you coming on the app pod. Thank you, Wayne. Good to be with you.